Good morning. Good Good to see everyone this morning. I am Father John, and I am the pastor here. I've missed you guys for the last two weeks, Um, out sick and then out on vacation. One really not so great thing and one really great thing, Um, but I'm so happy to be home with you guys this morning and to see you. I missed you. Um, it is, what's the day today? July 30th, 31st, thank you. And um, so that means that I have now been here as the pastor about, about a year now. Um, and it's been such a wonderful year. I was sharing uh, with a group of folks from our church one time that uh, we bought this house just right outside of Shambly. And the guy that owned the house before us, he was a biologist. I think he worked at the CDC, uh, but he must have really loved plants. And he's got a be- he had a beautiful yard. Um, but, you know, we moved in there like last September, and we didn't know all what was in the yard. <laughs> and then, you know, the winter came, and then once spring hit, once it was like February, all of a sudden, like flowers were just popping up all over the place, like all over the yard. And like every week or two, it was like a huge surprise that something that I might even thought was going to be a weed or something turns out to be like a flower, like things were just blooming. And I was just so grateful for this wonderful man that came before us that planted all this great stuff that, that is blooming. And in so many ways, that is exactly how I feel about you guys in this church. This year, I have just seen wonderful flowers blooming in you guys and in your ministry here in the church. And I'm super thankful for it because to be honest, I didn't plan it. Like I'm not the one that taught you guys Sunday school. I'm not the one that discipled you. I'm not the one that started this church. And I'm becoming just behind uh, just a really great thing that I'm just super grateful to be a part of. Uh, I've been spending over, over the last week, we're on vacation with two other families that we go way back with to our campus ministry days and missionary days, and we all went to Fuller Seminary together, and so we're kind of catching up on life, and of course, they're all asking me, like, how are things going in Atlanta? How's with your church? And I just tell them how grateful I am for you guys. Um, I feel like in so many ways, you guys just opened your hearts to us and just welcomed us and just showed us so much trust from the very beginning. I've never felt like I had to, like, really work to win, win, win you guys over, which is totally fine if I had to, nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think that's just a testimony to the, to the great church that has come before, before us, Trinity, our mother church, the leadership of Chris, the leadership of, of Trip, and just how great these guys were um, that I get to kind of just come in here and be a part of this earned trust. And if I remember where we were uh, a year ago as I showed up, you know, Delta was spiking, um, we had a, a, amazing volunteer staff, but they were either volunteer or interim, not working a lot of hours. Um, we had a lot to kind of rebuild, right, post-COVID. And we've been able to just to really rebuild so much over this last year. And we've, we've got kind of a, a full staff team again. And um, we're really po- poised to have a really great second year of ministry in my time here. And... Um, you know, and I think in a sense we've increased our capacity so much to minister to our city in this last year. And then this next year with the new building we're going to be moving into, which is just going to greatly enhance our experience of worship, greatly enhance our ability to minister to our kids 
and really just to welcome new people into our church. It's an exciting year we've got ahead of us, and I'm super thankful for it, and yeah, thankful to have this, this gift from God, this opportunity to be doing this with you. We have, in the summer, been journeying through the Old Testament, and we've been in the prophets. And this, year, this morning, our reading is from Hosea. We could ask the question, which is a good question that we can continually ask as we study the, the scriptures, what is God like? What is God like, and how would you describe his relationship to his people Israel? And this is the picture that the prophet Hosea paints for us. Israel is God's son that has gone wayward and has turned away from God's love. And God is like a loving and caring and compassionate, but also wounded father that refuses to give up on his child. Give you guys a little context for the prophet uh, Hosea. It's very similar, uh, almost the same context as the prophet Amos that we talked about maybe two or three weeks ago. So Israel, this is the northern kingdom. At this point, Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And this is back in the 700s, you know, the 700s BC, right? So it's a good, good long time ago. And at this point, The dominant political power in the region is called Assyria, and Assyria really isn't all that far away, and their power is expanding, and their power is beginning to threaten the security and the freedom of of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it turns out that God's people have been looking to other gods and other powers other than their God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now... The prophet Hosea, very similar to the prophet Amos, is here to pronounce uh, God's judgment, but also to offer um, a vision of hope. So let's dig into the text this morning. We're in Hosea 11. And it begins with defining the relationship and how the relationship began. This is what God says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, I can tell you guys that I haven't always been a parent. But since becoming a parent, this text actually hits uh, really different and even harder than it might hit. I just had the pleasure this last week of getting to spend a lot of time with my kids. You know, it is the work life. You go to work and you come back and usually, you know, often you might have just a few hours to spend with your kids in the afternoon or the evening. So it was just such a gift for us. Uh, We were out on this lake in some random place in northern Wisconsin, right? And so uh, there's no even town or even a small town even nearby. So we're just out there in the woods on this lake with, with all of our kids And it was just so great to be able to spend time with them each day and to watch them just enjoy their life there. Uh, My boy Martin was in heaven. He was collecting. He had three three frogs in one hand and one in his right at at one point. Uh, Collecting frogs, uh, caught two snakes, 
Uh, the turtle remained elusive. He wasn't able to get the turtle until the very last moment. He was like, we got to get that turtle. Um, but also maybe pulled in a fish or two and just had so much fun playing out on the water. And it's just so great to be able to, to spend time with them. And um, if we have kids, maybe we think about the memories we want to make with them. But hopefully even all of us have some good memories with a parent or some kind of uh, parental figure in our lives. And it's, it's this kind of memory that God is recalling to his people. He's saying, hey, we spent time together. Like when Israel was a child, like I loved you and I cared for you. Not only that, I, I called you out of Egypt. This speaks in a sense of, of a salvation, of rescue. It speaks of adoption. I called you out of Egypt. I called you out of danger. I called you out of slavery. I called you into a place where you could flourish. I called you so that I could love and care for you and to give you all that you needed. But verse two says, the more I called them, the more they went from me. Can you feel the sad, wounded heart of God. They kept sacrificing to other gods like the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. Ephraim is just another word for Israel. They kind of switch back and forth. It's a poetic way of talking about Israel. It was I that taught Israel how to walk and I took them in my arms but they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift, who lift infants to their cheeks and who bend down to feed them. What an amazing picture. What is God like? What is his relationship to his people? God is like a gentle, loving, nurturing father who rescues his kids out of danger and bends down to feed them. What are God's people like? They're like a wayward child that does not recognize the care that they received from their parent. They can't recognize who saved them. We might ask, why? Why did they turn to God, to other gods? Why did they turn to Baal? Why are they worshiping other gods? Sometimes it's like this. We think of ourselves as having a sincere faith in Christ. We're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I've been baptized. I go to church most Sundays, that kind of stuff. But then also sometimes we aren't sure that Jesus has everything covered. It's like we need Jesus to do this stuff over here, but then we might need to put our trust in something else to get it done. And in a sense, we might have to trust in something else that kind of, in a sense, conflicts with the way of Jesus. And we tell ourselves things like, this is just the way business works. Or this is just the way Politics 
work in the real world. I know Jesus teaches that, but in the real world, we also need to fill in the blank. Sacrificing to Baal for Israel is like us sacrificing to the God of academia or the God of the market or the God of whatever political ideology you might find yourself in. And my friends, I want to be clear, it's not that science or economics or politics are bad. These are all good things. But they find their goodness in being set under and in submission to the good God that created us and them and everything that flows from him. And it's when we want to kind of take those things and set it alongside God's ways in a way that they begin to compete and demand more from us and demand things from us that God actually had said, no, actually that doesn't go along with my ways that are good and beautiful and true. And these things become gods to us. They're idols that turn our hearts from the good and loving father who rescued us. Friends, I want you to know that these Israelites aren't silly Bronze Age people. The Baals are real. The temptation to assimilate and worship the powers of the world are always a present temptation to the people of God. The story of Hosea just isn't their story. The story of Hosea is our story. And so, of course, the announcement is the promise of exile. God's children have, re- re- have resisted him, and they have persisted in rejecting the Father, and they have been going after foreign gods. And so all God says is, you want to serve that foreign God in that foreign system? Now you're actually going to go into exile, and you're totally going to become subservient to it. You're going to find out what it's like to live in domination and submission to the foreign God and the foreign way of life. And so verse five says this, they shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to turn to me. Now, some of you might be like, what's going on? I remember a little bit from geography. Assyria's over here. Why are they mentioned in Egypt? But of course, the text began with saying, out of Egypt, I call my son, right? Out of domination from Gentile foreign powers, when you were enslaved there, I called you out. But you haven't recognized this good and beautiful way I wanted to live you in. Now I'm letting you go, in a sense, back to Egypt. Only Egypt now has a new name, right? The new power is Assyria. Of course, after that, it's going to become Babylon. There's always some kind of Egypt out there. There's always some kind of foreign power that promises to be stronger and is, and is ready to dominate the people of God. And so exile is equated with slavery in Egypt. They're going to be going into exile. That means they're not going to be home anymore. I don't know about you guys, but I like to travel. I like to go out there, but I also like to come home. I flew in yesterday around two, took the metro on up, Ubered from the Doraville metro to my home. And I just stood at the door. I was like, oh, I feel so good to be here. Those ferns need to be watered, but you know, we're going to get those. Go inside the house and, you know, just kind of do my thing, putting some things away and After a while, I decided, hey, I got to cook some food, right? So I went into the kitchen, and I'm starting to make some pasta. 
and I opened the cabinet right below and the pot to make pasta is right where it needed to be, as was the strainer, as was everything else. You see, I had been cooking up in Wisconsin in a kitchen that was foreign to me, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know where anything is. And, and it's just so nice sometimes to be home where everything is kind of in its place and you just feel like natural to you. And it's the tragedy that God had created this beautiful home where everything was in its place. Everything that they needed was provided and was there. Now God is saying, you're not gonna get to be in the place where everything is as it should be. It's gonna be a foreign place. It's gonna be like reaching for that colander, but that colander is never there. God's people are going into exile. Verse seven says, my people are bent on turning away from me to the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. Note the finality. God says exile is coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it. God called and they turned. Now they will get what they turned to, given over to foreign gods and foreign powers. But then we get to verse eight. And in verse eight, there's a plot twist. And this happens a lot in the prophets. And there's a lot of this kind of weaved in through, through the book of Hosea. I encourage you to go back and read it for yourself if you haven't read it recently. It turns out Hosea is not just a prophet of judgment, but also of hope. Listen to what God says to the people in verse eight. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I hand you over like I did Adma? And how can I treat you like I did Zeboim? Now, these uh, aren't cities that we're super familiar with. I'm not talking about them all the time. But these are cities that were coupled with Sodom and Gomorrah. These are pagan cities that God had pronounced judgment on and destroyed. And they are no more. And that's why we don't know their names. And what God says, how can I make you like those cities that I destroyed? And then God says this, my heart recoils within me. And that Hebrew verb is actually the same verb of like, how can I give you up? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over like I handed over those cities? And since my heart is handed over, what is it handed over to? My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. And here's the catch. Here's so of an interesting way to put it. God says, for I am God and no mortal. I am the holy one in your midst and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. So that means follow behind the Lord who roars like a lion. And when he roars, the children shall come trembling from the West. They shall come trembling from Egypt Again, it's this imagery of coming out of Egypt, even though they're coming from Assyria. And like doves from the land of Assyria, they will return from their homes, says the Lord. What is God like? It's so interesting in the text, right? God says, for I am a God and no mortal. I am the holy one in your midst. What's this for there for? Why is God saying, hey, I'm not like you mortals, I'm not like you. What does it mean to be God? What is it that sets God apart from the humans? And in this text, 
What sets God apart is that God is one who chooses compassion over wrath. He's a good and merciful father. God is faithful to an unfaithful people. It turns out that God's holiness is not ultimately demonstrated in judgment, but in merciful compassion. What an amazing plot twist. What an amazing God we serve. God chooses compassion over wrath. Now, I'm not, some of us might be thinking, well, I, you know, I know some people that aren't God, that are mortal, that are all about compassion and merciful. And I think what this text would say to that is yes. And when people show compassion and mercy, they are showing the actual love of God that they have received from their father in heaven. Remember, uh, Jesus is talking to the people about not giving uh, others what they deserve and to give the to give to people and to be generous and to show mercy to the sinners. And he says, because when you do these things, you are being merciful like your father in heaven who is merciful. And so Israel indeed faces certain judgment, but it turns out judgment will not be the last word. God is a loving father, warm and tender, compassionate. His heart is turned towards his wayward children. God will let them go their own way, but only for a season. He is a compassionate father who will rescue his children out of Egypt. So what might all this mean for us this morning? One question we could ask ourselves is, what are some of the ways, or are there ways in which I have become like, a wayward child. Do you know where your salvation comes from? Do you know the one who saved you when you couldn't save yourself? Do you know where your provision comes from? Who is your provider? Have you aligned yourself with some other God, maybe the God of the isms, worldly ideologies that compete with the love of the Father. This morning, it's a good time just to do a little check, just a little inventory and think about my life and think about, is there ways in which there's some compromise there? There's some ways in which I thought somehow not following God's good and beautiful loving ways was gonna lead to more life and more flourishing than the way that God had set before me. It's a good moment to reflect. Another thing we could reflect on is to ask ourselves the question, how can we spread the message to our friends here in Atlanta that God is a good and a loving father and that he's faithful to us even when we aren't faithful? I want us to notice that God isn't actually soft on sin in this text. God actually takes our idolatry seriously. But he refuses to let our no be the end of the relationship. Some of us might be tempted to think that the idolatry thing really isn't that big of a deal. Like, ah, kind of there's a lot of ways to get there. 
and you kind of do your thing. You be you, I be me. You know, we kind of do our thing. And then other, others of us might be tempted to think that, yeah, idolatry is a big deal, but there's a way that I can fix it. There's a way that I can kind of get myself out of this mess. And I want you to notice in the text that Israel actually can't fix it. There's no way to fix themselves. But God's promise is this. He will lead them back home. This is the message of the gospel. It's God that's going to fix Israel's broken story. This is what God is like. A loving and wounded father who won't give up on us. In fact, he's the only one that is powerful enough to rescue us from the mess that we have gotten ourselves into. It's in the incarnation that God showed us most clearly what God is like. When God took on flesh in the person of Jesus, he demonstrated God's no matter whatness by dying on the cross. The cross is God's ultimate act of faithfulness to an unfaithful people. So we can ask ourselves the question, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to demonstrate that kind of faithfulness to our precious, loved, and sinful, and idolatrous neighbors? What, what would it look like to demonstrate that kind of faithfulness? What does it look like to say, no, actually, you're not okay, but yes, you are completely and totally loved. And yes, Christ is here to rescue you. We need to announce and to demonstrate the good news. God is good and compassionate and a loving father. And he is faithful to unfaithful people like us. Christ is here to lead us home. My prayer for you this morning is that you would receive the compassion that God has for you. That you would know Christ. Christ is God's choosing of compassion over wrath. The wounded heart of the Father is beating with compassion, ready to rescue you and lead you home. Amen. I want to invite you now into a moment of silence as we reflect on what the Spirit would be saying to us in this time.
I want to invite you to stand with me as we confess our faith in the compassionate and merciful Father and the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. Amen.